like you to stand with me, if you would, please. I'm going to read a passage of Scripture from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. And it's one of the most famous passages of Scripture um, that, it's, uh, that we know of. And uh, so uh, read along with me, if you would, please. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him, and they opened up his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall seek God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for in like manner they persecuted the prophets before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is good then for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled under the foot of men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all those who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father. Who is in heaven. May God add his blessing to his holy word. Thank you. You may be seated. It's one of the most famous passages in all of scripture. Sermons beyond number have been preached on each one of the Beatitudes, and books have been written on the subject. If you go online, you'll see that the internet quotes the uh, Sermon on the Mount endlessly, and a lot of it's political. And, uh, but imagine for a moment that you and I are sitting in a high school English class and we've been given the assignment of analyzing the Sermon on the Mount, the passage that we just read. One of the things that we would do is outline it. The first verse establishing the setting would be called the opening, the introduction. And then we would identify the next ten verses the um, Beatitudes would be the um, body and verses 13 and 14 where Jesus depicts his disciples as salt of the earth and light of the world would be the conclusion. Like any good sermon, there is an application. Part of the message that answers the question, so what? Jesus does this in verse 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works And glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now one could reasonably ask, how how is it that a person lets their light shine before men? Well, using our outline analysis, working backwards, we could answer, well, you do that by being salt and light. Well, then how does one become salt and light? Working backward through our outline, we'd say, by the detailed examples listed in the Beatitudes. We become salt and light by being meek and pursuing righteousness and being merciful and pure in heart. 
The conclusion then is that we are the light of the world when we glorify our Father in heaven by living the life that Jesus prescribes in the Beatitudes. Each of these blessings is unique to Christians. Non-Christians are generally not interested in thirsting after righteousness or being pure in heart. So these distinctives make it possible for the disciples of Jesus Christ to let their light shine before men. Christians are called in this passage to respond in a manner that is different than other people. And we do these things, when we do these things, we make it possible for the world to see and to take notice. For the purposes of this discussion, I would like to focus on verses 10 and 11 because I believe they have unique application in the subject of missions and missionaries. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you, should, when you are reviled by men and they persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is probably the most challenging of the Beatitudes, to rejoice in the face of persecution. A couple of years ago, I was having a conversation with a man uh, in one of our adult foster homes. Sue and I operate adult foster homes in the Albany area. We take care of old people. And frequently, get into conversations with adult children about their aging parents. Now, this conversation was, uh, was a little unique in that the person was a fairly, this man was a fairly um, blunt individual, and we had had previous conversations about his attitude toward Christians. He thought uh, Christianity was tribalism. Uh, he didn't like Christians. He didn't like Christianity, and it was particularly had contempt for evangelical Christians. So we had some fun conversations. And he told me that um, he wanted his mother to be comfortable as she was aging. She uh, was quite aged. And I agreed, and I said, you know, we would do everything we can to keep your mom comfortable. And then in the spirit of our previous conversations, I said, you know, there is value in suffering. He looked at me like I had horns growing out of my head. <laughs> he said, what possible value could there be in suffering? I said, suffering brings you closer to God. And with a couple of profanities, he indicated his disagreement with that concept. Jesus was by no means unique in his teaching about suffering and rejoicing. James says in the second verse of his book, consider it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith works endurance. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul describes a thorn in the flesh, some type of physical malady. We don't know what it is. And he prayed three times that God would remove it from him. And finally, in, uh, he concludes, that he records the response of Christ in verse 9. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmity that the power of Christ may rest in me. What an extraordinary expression of faith. 
So how does the disciple of Christ let his light shine in the face of betrayal by friends and by family, in the face of financial calamity, in the face of terminal diagnosis? I'd suggest two things. One is preparation. The disciple of Jesus Christ lets his life shine in trial by being prepared. Now each week from this pulpit, we hear the admonition to pray and to read our Bible. And there are many virtues, many benefits of that discipline, those disciplines, but one of them is that trial is best endured in the context of preparation, of having saturated our minds with the scriptures. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that does not need to be ashamed, correctly dividing the word of truth. The apostle Peter wrote an epistle to the suffering church in the first century. In his first epistle he writes, but sanctify, that is make holy, the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man of the reason of the hope that is within you in meekness and fear. Now, that's often applied to apologetics. We ought to be able to defend the faith, but I think in that context, it's better suited to suffering. How is it that you are able to endure trial? In September 1986, I was in an administrative position in a hospital in Washington, in the state of Washington, and this hospital experienced the first nursing strike Uh, in the Pacific Northwest at that time. They were followed by a series of them throughout the Pacific Northwest, having a lot to do with uh, government reimbursement of hospitals and mergers, and there was a lot of turmoil. But we were were, uh, unique in that we were one of the first. And as uh, negotiation, uh, I I was asked to sit at the table for negotiations representing the hospital, which was kind of an interesting strategy because just the year prior I had been working side by side with these nurses on the on the floor and they were my friends but we were challenged to negotiate a contract where we didn't pay any money it's called a no net gain contract nurses were understandably upset they went out on strike for two weeks Afterward, we, were, uh, we hired, the hospital hired consultants to come back and say, okay, how do we put this work environment back together so that we can take care of patients without this unmitigated conflict? And the consultants told me that, well, the first thing you have to do is you have to allow people to give vent to their anger. One of the things I learned about a strike is if you really want to make people mad, you mess with the commodities that they value the most, that is their time and their money. The strike does both. And it was, it was uh, accentuated in this case by the sense of betrayal because I had been one of them not that long before. So I became a lightning rod for their frustration and anger. So at the suggestion of the consultants who said, you know, don't take it personally, it's just part of the process, I sat in a room with my boss for two days, and we had six 90-minute meetings, typically attended by about 30 people, where we sat in this room and they told me all the things that they hated about Jerry McIntosh. All the 
offenses that I had committed in this trial, in this strike. I was 30 years old at the time. I remember thinking, I haven't lived long enough to be, do all these awful things. But about 30 minutes into the first meeting, I took out a tablet and I began to write. And uh, the first, um, first verse that I wrote, as I recall, the first verse that came to mind was from our Matthew 5 text. This morning, blessed are you, and men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. On and on I wrote, 12 pages front and back. My boss asked me, what were you writing all that time? I said, Bible verses. She said, can I see it? I said, sure, and I gave her my 12 pages of handwriting. I never got it back. I've often regretted that. I didn't pursue that with her before I left the next year. Now, I imagine in my mind's eye that a day will come when I have passed from the scene and I'm looking at my life from the perspective of eternity. And in my imagination, I see a videotape of my life passing in review. And we come to September of 1986 in those two days in that conference room. And I suspect when I see that, I'm going to say to myself, that was one of the good times. That was the time when God manifests his presence in my heart and mind tangibly. That was the time when the power of God was revealed to me through his scriptures. That was a good time. There is a gold to be mined, a treasure to be acquired only in the context of trial. So we become, we handle, we manage trial by being prepared, by Bible reading, by prayer. We also manage trial. We let our light shine by the exercise of our faith. The writer of Hebrews defines faith as the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. He later writes that without faith it is impossible to please God, for he that comes to him must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So how do we bring this together, this notion of faith and trial? If you're in the middle of trial, it seems like faith would be the most challenging and difficult thing to grasp. I recently read a book by a guy named Nick Ripkin. It's not his real name, it's a pseudonym because he works with the underground church. The book is called The Insanity of God. His ministry is what we refer to as the suffering church. And he, uh, he's been in 60 different countries, including places like Somalia and Afghanistan and China. He was commissioned initially from this work to interview Christians in the suffering church and to ask them the question, well, what do you do? How do you merge faith and in the context of persecution? How do you manage it? 
How do you do it? And the idea was to develop a model to teach other Christians in persecuted churches how to cope. Dr. Rifkin says that was the stated objective, but I had a different one in my own mind. He says, I grew up in Kentucky, in Appalachia, and we never had persecution in the town. We were poor, but we never had persecution in the town. He says, in fact, everybody was some variant of Baptist, so there was no religious persecution. And what I was curious about is, we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus was God and that he descended to earth as a baby, Emmanuel, God with us. He lived a sinless life, he died on the cross, and he was resurrected on the third day. And the question I had in my mind, Dr. Ripping said, is, is that enough? Is that sufficient to sustain me in trial? Does it really make a difference? At one point, he met with a group of Christians at a cell church in China. And he met in the, they met in the basement of this house. And as they were making introductions, he was talking to them through a translator. They asked him a question. They said, are there people who love Jesus outside of China? They'd never heard of it. All they knew was Christian faith in China. They they didn't know if there was any, such was the nature of their isolation. And Dr. Rifkin said, yeah, yeah, there's lots of Christians. They're all over the world. And then they asked, are there other Christians who are persecuted like we are? who are oppressed by their government. Now, Dr. Ripken had just visited Somalia, where the church has almost been extinguished by persecution, and where in Afghanistan, where it's very violent reaction, response to Christians. And so he said, yeah, there's two two countries I was just at, and he described the persecution. The evening ended, he went to bed. He said, six o'clock the next morning, I heard this tumult, this commotion in the basement. He says, when I woke up, I thought maybe they were, the church was being raided by the government and there were Christians were all being arrested. So I said, I went downstairs and as I got closer to the room, I, um, I heard the words Somalia and Afghanistan. And through a translator, I came to appreciate that because of our conversation, this group of Christians in China had committed themselves to praying for those two countries and the Christians in them for the balance of the year. When China was taken over by Mao Zedong in 1948, it's estimated that there were about a million Christians, largely from the work of uh, Hudson Taylor since the 1850s. About a million Christians, it was never really popular but it was, Hudson Taylor was credited with stemming the opium epidemic in the last part of the 19th century. So there are about a million Christians. Now, when you estimate Christians in China, it's kind of a guessing game because we, China is a closed country and the church is underground, so you don't really know. And if you look at different places, you'll get different numbers. But generally speaking, there was a bunch of Christians in 1948. If present trends continue, it is estimated that there will be 160 million Christians 
in China by the year 2025. Again, that's an estimate. But consider that, one million in 1948, 70 years of repression, bootleg repression by an aggressively atheistic government going to 160 million in 2025, a mere six years away. Like I say, the numbers are, are sketchy. However, if you attend our prayer conference, uh, prayer meetings on Thursday nights at 7 o'clock over in the Discipleship Center, you'll get a sense of why that's possible. There's no question that the Christian church in China is experiencing explosive growth. Nobody, even the secular um, uh, sociologists, will, uh, will not deny that. Explosive growth. And when you, um, when you visit with us on Thursday nights, we pray for YWAM, who has a ministry in Southeast Asia, principally toward uh, the Christian leaders in China who want to disciple their uh, the believers. In China, the Christians have a different attitude toward evangelism. They don't regard sharing their faith as a duty or an obligation. If you're a Chinese Christian, you share your faith as a lifeline of hope in a soul-stealing environment of oppression. You share your faith to rescue people from a life of pointlessness and despair, to give them hope. Christian faith gives us meaning and gives us hope. So to the persecuted church in China, a more appropriate question is not, well, the question is not, does the gospel really matter? To, in the context of the Chinese believer, the more appropriate question is, does anything else matter? I mean, really, in terms of inspiring hope in such a place. When a person enlists in the military, we say that they sign a blank check to their country for the duration of their service. And for that reason, we honor people who make that commitment, whether they come into harm's way or not. To a large degree, the, Christian, the missionary does the same thing. The only difference is the cause to which they dedicate their life. They sign a check to the ministry for the gospel of Jesus Christ. In your bulletin, you can see a list of missionaries that we support. It's on two pages, a big number of folks in Africa and all over the world. And nearly all of these missionaries serve in parts of the world where Christianity is not welcome. Our congregation invested 1,350 hours this past week in praying for those missionaries. Our missionaries have a kinship with the persecuted church in that they put themselves under trial. The difference is, if you're born in China, you don't have any choice in the matter. You, are, you endure trial if you believe, choose to be a Christian just because of where you live. People who come from our congregation and go to those places know what they're leaving. They know and appreciate what sacrifices are required. Many of them at risk, are at risk for their personal safety on a daily basis. All of them deal with corruption, theft of personal property, 
deprivation of all kinds of comforts that you and I take for granted. Is it worth it? Is it worth the sacrifice? I will tell you that on some days it's a question where the discouragement is great, and that's why we pray for them. Paul said if the resurrection is not true, then we are dead in our sins, and we are above all men most to be pitied. But if the resurrection is true, it changes everything. It changes everything. Jesus commanded us to let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. This is illustrated in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. This passage of scripture has been called the great hall of faith. In this passage, the writer of Hebrews details by name the heroes of the Old Testament who courageously maintained their faith in the fire of persecution. Verse 37 reads, they were, they were stoned and they were sawn asunder. They were tempted, were slain by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. And then the author of Hebrews makes what is almost an offhand comment. He says, of whom the world was not worthy, in verse 38. Often, most texts, it's, it's parenthesized. It's kind of like an afterthought. That list in Hebrews 11 was written 2,000 years ago. It's not complete. There have been many people who have been added to that list who have endured similar, if not greater, trial in the interim. I imagine in my mind's eye a person standing in the last days before the judgment of the saints depicted in Corinthians where we're told by our master, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the happiness, the joy of the Lord. Not everybody will hear that, but many will. And I like to imagine, this is my imagination, that there's a narrower group within that context who will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. You are numbered among those of whom the world was not worthy. In the end, there is no persecuted church. There is no free church. There is no American church versus non-American church. There's only the church. There's one bride of Christ. And for that reason, you and I have kinship and fellowship with those who endure trial across the world. We are of the same body. I invite you to consider that as we gather to pray on Thursday nights, 7 o'clock, Discipleship Center. We pray for the church and we do battle in that room like we have for the past week. And things, events that we take up before the throne of grace are resolved in that little room. I believe that. And we see a testimony of that and evidence of that throughout the course of the year. We're taking a missions offering next week. You may have heard about it. 
Our goal is 140,000. Now about 120 of that is dedicated to the commitments that we already have, people that we've committed to supporting. And so we, we encourage the support of God's people in this church to sustain that mission effort around the world. But we like to get a little more because we like to do projects. We like to build a church here. We like to build a classroom there. We like to meet the needs we built in the past couple of years. We've built houses, accommodations for missionaries in tough, tough parts of the world. Please prayerfully consider your part and consider giving specifically to missions and sacrificially to missions in the next year or in the next weekend. The funds that we gather are used to budget for missions for the balance of the year. Our great God and Heavenly Father, by your design, you have created the world in such a manner that the Great Commission depends on us, fallible, weak, often selfish people. You could have just done it yourself by the, will, by the will of your word, like you did creation, but you chose to use us. And for that reason, we are given an, ex, an exquisite privilege to be a part of your great work on this planet. And I pray that this next week that we will take that seriously and that we will commit to pray for our missionaries and to give sacrificially to this offering. We thank you for the presence of your spirit in this room today. We'd ask that you continue to bless us in worship.